this week on the Backtable Podcast. Like trying to get a wire into the OA, it's just going to make it mad and perhaps preclude treatment. So the trick instead is to take advantage of the distal carotid anatomy and the flow-directed properties of the microcatheter. And if you think about the cavernous ICA into the supraclinoid segment, it's a bit of a hairpin. And even though these microcatheters are incredibly soft, they'd still rather be straight as opposed to curved. So as you slowly withdraw or advance the catheter across the ostium, it'll want to jump in in, in almost every case. And that, you know, that was counterintuitive to me because advancing the microcatheter without a wire in front of it is something that would have probably got me benched during a case as a fellow. But in this situation, it's, it's safe and it's really effective. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. I'm a private practice IR doc based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. We have a very cool topic lined up today, but before we get to that, I just wanted to take a second and plug our new website. For those of you that are interested, check out the new website at backtable.com. We recently renovated it, and we're really proud of the content and the new features. A lot of people worked hard on it. So if you're interested, please check it out. It's a work in progress. If you guys have any feedback, please let us know. We always want to make it better. Also, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction and radiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad. Radiation protection shields for all your fluoro guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information. Contact them at info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and no brainer radiation protection cap. And please let them know you heard about it from the Back People podcast. All right. So let's jump in today. We have our guest today here, Dr. Eric Monroe. Our topic today will be endovascular treatment of retinoblastoma. Very fascinating, very cool topic, cool procedure. Eric, before we get into things, will you just take a second to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your practice? Sure, Chris. Thanks. And uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for the Backtable podcast. It's an awesome resource. And I'm really excited to be here with you today. Uh, just briefly, I'm a product of UW, having done both radiology residency and IR fellowship here uh, before joining staff in 2015. Right now, about 90% of my clinical time is spent in pediatric IR at Seattle Children's and the remainder 10%. I spread out among the UW sites of practice in adult IR. So when you did, uh, when you went through training, did you do a dedicated pediatric IR fellowship? Was that something added on or was it kind of baked into the fellowship? Like, like everyone who comes through UW has enough like PD experience to practice pediatric IR? It was more or less baked in. And in those days I had finished uh, some of the requirements early on and I spent the entirety of my PGY five year doing IR, so sort of the mini fellowship as they used to call it back then. And I formally jumped into the adult IR fellowship, but spent the last half of that focusing on peds. Okay, awesome. All right, so let's take a like uh, 10,000 foot look at what retinoblastoma treatment looks like today in terms of like where does intraarterial chemotherapy fall into the algorithm? Is it the mainstay? Is it second line? Or or just kind of talk a little bit about like the standard retinoblastoma treatment and how intraarterial chemotherapy falls into that. Sure. So 
just quickly, uh, retinoblastoma is the number one ocular neoplasm of kids, and it's one of the most child, most common childhood cancers. There's about 350 diagnoses per year in the U.S., so that's about one a day. When it's confined to the eye, removal of tumors curative, but when it gets into the CSF or CNS, uh, unfortunately, it's very hard to eradicate. As for the standard of therapy, it depends on where you're practicing. And most places without an intraarterial program, standard would typically be intravenous chemotherapy plus or minus surgery. And if you're at a higher volume place with an IAC program, IAC has largely replaced IV chemo as the best available therapy. And this is complemented by, by other eye-directed therapies, usually performed by ophthalmology, including laser ablation, cryoablation, and intramitrial chemotherapy. But if you come to Seattle Children's with disease that's confined to the eye, in all likelihood, we're going to be starting with IAC. So just uh, one clear for our audience, IAC is intraarterial chemotherapy. And uh, when you say IV chemotherapy, that's just systemic chemotherapy? Correct. It seems to me that like with retinoblastoma, and, and maybe I don't know the referral patterns uh, of this tumor as, as well as, as some, but it seems like most people would be at high volume centers or, or you know, like uh, high end tertiary referral centers to have, have treatment of this. Just um, like it doesn't it doesn't seem like a, very much like something like someone in the community would be able to tackle or, or maybe I'm off on that. You would think so, but you might be surprised that there will be some uh, treatment that's taken care of out at uh, smaller centers or out in the community, if you will. We're situated out in the Pacific Northwest, and we have this huge geographic territory, five states uh, ending up in our referral base. But even within that territory, some cases are managed elsewhere, and they'll, they'll come to us for a salvage or a recurrent disease. Okay. And as far as, like, volume of cases that you guys see, if there's, if there's about one per day or, you know, 350 uh, per year, how many, how many treatments, or not, not how many treatments, but how many patients will you see in a given year, roughly? So that typically turns out to be, a, to you know, 10 or 12 patients to our institution, a majority of which, but not all, will end up with intra-arterial uh, chemo. Okay. And then each patient will receive, uh, we can get into that a little bit later, but it, it's usually not a one-and-done treatment. It's, uh, you know, usually right. multiples of, yep. Okay. All right. So if we can talk about, you know, when someone gets referred to you, one, what does that referral pattern look like? And then what is your initial evaluation of that patient look like? Well, the referrals are typically ophthalmology to ophthalmology. So someone out in the community or in our region, an ophthalmologist, made the diagnosis or was referred by a pediatrician and then sends them to our ophthalmology program. And we have a ophthalmologic oncologist that's on our team. And so we have a lot of expertise locally and they're usually coming through that department. But that referral then triggers our team to, to get together and get this uh, patient uh, on our protocol. And so what does that look like in terms of like who, who is a member of the team and, and like when is the first time you're seeing the patient, like after they've been evaluated by the community ophthalmologist or the ophthalmologist oncologist? Yeah, no, thanks for asking that. I mean, it's, it's not something I can emphasize enough. And we have an incredible team, neuro-oncology, ophthalmology, nurses, coordinators, social work, genetics, et cetera. It's really fantastic. And we could not be doing this, this great work for not, uh, without the team. And when the referral comes, that that's disseminated uh, throughout that team. And typically, they will come to Children's and they'll have an examination under anesthesia by our ophthalmologist. And they'll have a clinic appointment uh, set up that same day where they'll discuss the results of that exam, both with ophthalmology, neuro-oncology, and interventional radiology. 
with a care plan determined on the spot. Wow, that's very impressive. And so the exam under anesthesia happens on the same day. The two clinic appointments happen on the same day. And then at what point do they roll through the IR clinic or is or, or is that not a part of the process? So we make ourselves available for the neuro-oncology clinics all right up there. And sometimes it's a sequential clinic visit. Sometimes it's a combined clinic with, with all members of the team participating and answering questions and, and getting the family ready. Okay. Uh, usually at that time, they, they need an MRI uh, to complete the staging. Once that MRI is acquired, uh, we're working on uh, booking the first treatment. And what's, I imagine people that come from all over, what's the time frame from getting seen in the clinic to getting all the staging done to when you actually can initiate the first treatment? What does that look like? It's A lot of that work is being done in, in parallel. And so we're going for uh, completeness, but also efficiency. So that day when we decide that this patient's going to be an intraarterial candidate, that we begin arrangements for that procedure, we begin arrangements for the MRI, hopefully having the MRI prior to the treatment for some reasons we can get it to later. And that all usually takes place within a few weeks. And in almost all cases, we have that patient uh, in for their first treatment within the month. Wow. That's very efficient. Can you speak a little bit about to telemedicine and how UW was set up prior and, and, you know, after like, you know, life changes uh, following COVID-19, like has that, has that changed health practice at all in terms of being able to see patients remotely or yeah, speak to that a little bit? Great question. I, I would say yes and no. I think we've had uh, telemedicine set up at both UW and Children's long before COVID. With retinoblastoma, however, there there are necessary pieces of the workup that include an in-person examination under anesthesia and the MRI. And so by necessity, the, par- the patient and parents are coming to campus and, and getting a lot of this workup done. And that's facilitated everyone um, who's part of the team getting to know them and getting going right away. As for COVID, the way we've approached things, even when we were really slowing down cases, oncology in many people's minds is an emergency. And while we continue to do, you know, you, know, you true emergencies like bleeds and water breath, mm-hmm. we regarded uh, cancer treatment as an emergency as well. And that pressed on without delay. That's excellent. So let's talk a little bit about the, the patient population that you're dealing with. I'm assuming there's a lot of people like myself in our audience who don't know a whole lot about just retinoblastoma in general, let alone like the patient population that it affects. Can you talk a little bit about what a typical patient, you know, age range looks like, you know, from neonates to adolescents and kind of talk about like what your typical patient looks like throughout the year? Of course. So it's, it's useful to, to take a step back and, and think about retinoblastoma. It's really two types, sporadic, which is about two thirds of patients and heritable, which is related to RB1 gene mutations. And that's about a third. The patients with RB1 gene mutations are the ones that are more likely to develop bilateral disease, develop uh, tumors in the pineal region, in the cell out, and, um, and present in general earlier in life. So uh, sometimes the tumors are identified uh, shortly after birth, almost always with gene positive within the first year of life. Uh, whereas the splenic forms typically are presenting later, two years old, three years old, and very rarely beyond five years old. Once you've, once you've got it set up where you've seen the patient uh, pre-procedurally and then they're coming in for the day of the procedure, 
Are there any things uh, in particular, like are, are there any, you know, pre-procedural medications or antibiotics that they're started on before the day of their procedure or, or what do their pre-procedural meds look like the day of the procedure? So nothing before, or nothing okay. prior to arrival. Now for the case itself, we don't give any antibiotics, but we do put a nitro paste on the chest and this age of patients that usually a quarter inch. And it's for the discouragement of vasospasm once we get working. Some sites will put in eye drops, vasoconstrictive eye drops or uh, nasal sprays with the idea being to compress a regional vascular beds that you don't want uh, to be giving the uh, chemotherapy and theoretically drive uh, more of the chemotherapy down to the, to the retina itself, but that's not part of our practice. Okay. And the nitro paste to the chest, is, is that more for systemic uptake or is there a, a reason it's on the chest in particular? Uh, systemic uptake, it doesn't go okay. on the uh, chest necessarily. Sometimes when we run into vasospasm at the access site afterwards, we move it down to the groin and uh, okay. theoretically to alleviate some access related spasm down there. But as long as it's on the body, it should be getting systemic. Okay. All right. Gotcha. All right. So I think now is a good enough time as any to kind of jump into the procedure itself. Like I have a, I have a lot of questions about this. I don't do pediatrics. And, and so you'll have to forgive uh, some of the questions, but if you'll just kind of take us through like the step-by-step guide of, of what it looks like from access to initiate, initiating like uh, the chemotherapy. Sure. So these are really a, a concert of activity. And that's one of the things that makes this, the procedures really fun in my mind. So they've arrived, the nitroprase is on their chest. The first two medications, topotecan and carboplatin, are in the room and verified. That's really important. The child is then induced. Access at the femoral artery, and we've done things a variety of ways over the years for, for small arteries in general, not just retinoblastoma, but these days we're using a low-profile for French radial-style sheath. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately after access, we're heparinizing. Usually with a bowl, it's in the range of 75 to 100 units per kilogram. And while we're waiting for the heparin to work, we do a couple things. We give two to four pops of albuterol, and that's for the prevention of bronchospasm from distal carotid catheterization. Mm-hmm. And then right at that time, we'll call for the third chemo, and that's malphalan. And the reason we, we wait and do it then is because malphalan has a, a short half-life in terms of its potency. And we want it arriving to the IR suite right when we need to give it. Not too soon, not too late. We don't want to be sitting there waiting for it. We'll try and close that gap between needing and having it. After those things are done, we check an ACT and we see if we're at an appropriate level. We're typically targeting 275. We'll rebolus as needed. Uh, and then once we're appropriately heparinized, we take a forefront vert, select the ICA on the side of disease. And as far as imaging goes, we can get into it a little bit later, but we've, we've done things a variety of different ways in the past, but we're always looking to fine tune and reduce dose. So these days we're starting with a lateral only roadmap angiogram to, to see the origin of the ophthalmic artery, its configuration, and its anterograde flow to the eye. After that's confirmed, we're connected to a flush bag. We introduce a microcatheter and use that to select the osteum of the ophthalmic artery. Little contrast to confirm anterograde flow, again, lateral only, and then a roadmap check. And then we sequentially administer the chemo, uh, 10 minutes per drug. Uh, and at the end, a little contrast injection to make sure things are paid and still integrated. Uh, we confirm heparin has uh, partially subsided and then de-excess. I have a couple of questions. Just uh, one, like whenever you're putting in like a, a four French radial sheath, how far does the sheath, like when you insert the sheath, like the, the, 
from your, like your uh, vascular entry point, how far up the, of, it, of the body does it usually go? Like when you're talking about, you know, a, a one-year-old infant, like are you already in the aorta at this point? Yeah, we're, we're in the common or the aorta at that point. Just in general, in, in kids, you know, unless they're bleeding, if they have no contraindication to anticoagulation, even if we're just going to be there for a quick diagnostic angiogram, I will heparinize just because of the size relationship of that sheet to the vessel itself. And I alluded to some things we've done in the past, like bareback, microcatheter, after access for really small kids. You can put a hemostatic sidearm adapter on a micropuncture access set, and that, that is essentially a three-front sheet. Mm-hmm. Now we've barebacked the vert cap. We did that for a long time in retinoblastoma. But now that we've got these you know, lower profile sheets, it's really nice. It's, it's have more control uh, and steerability with the catheter rather than uh, going straight through the tissue into the artery. So, in, in part of this is kind of my ignorance of, of pediatric angiography. But at that point, so you have your four French in, and then you have your vert in, and then you have your microcatheter in. How much of this, like how much of the, the catheters are inside the patient versus like how much is just exterior to the patient? Like, are, are the, like what are the lengths of some of these catheters? Yeah, so the verts are going to be 100, and the the microcatheters are 165. And, you know, that's one of the, you know, struggles of peds, but one of the fun part of peds is that things aren't made for kids. They're, they're adapted for kids, and so sometimes the lengths are wonky. Uh, sometimes things don't go together that well. Uh, but in this case, the smaller patient, it's a normal-sized angio table, so they're just higher up on the table, and we have all of that remaining table to to lay out catheters and use that as workroom. Okay. And so whenever you're catheterizing like a, a pediatric ophthalmic artery, what is, what is the, the French size of your microcatheter and, and what's a, a rough diameter of, of like an ophthalmic artery? Yeah, it's about a millimeter. And the catheters we use, usually it's a 1.5 French microcatheter. I see. Uh, occasionally a 1.2 French. Both of those being below directed varieties, and we'll get up there with an 007 or an 008 wire. So, you know, for me, and I, I don't, I, I can't speak to the experience of other interventional radiologists, but I'm sure this is like the the tools you work with all the time. But that just seems like just a thread of a of a wire to use. Yeah, and, you know, and the caps themselves are quite noodly, but it's just something we <laughs> used to. Sure. Okay. I'm sure like anything, it's just, you know, there's a learning curve to it. And once you know how to use it, you start to develop like that tactile sensation from it. So once you've injected or or once, and, and I guess I'll also stress, and this is one of the things I kind of gaffed on when I sent you the, sent you the outline, this isn't chemoembolic therapy. This is intraarterial chemo infusion, right? That's right. That's right. So what we're banking on is you know, high first pass uptake of chemo. So we're showing it a bunch of, of concentrated chemo and then using that phenomenon to deliver a high dose to the tumor, but we're not embolizing anything that would then sort of defeat the purpose in this territory. It's important to recognize too that we're giving chemo transarterial, but uh, when I talk to patients, I always emphasize the fact that we're giving about 10% of the dose that they would otherwise receive when they're getting systemic chemo. So a lot of the things you associate with chemo and some of the toxicities, we don't really see that uh, in this treatment. But even though it's uh, a small uh, quantity of chemo compared to intravenous or systemic chemo, the tumor sees quite a bit of that on the first pass. Okay. Whenever, what's your endpoint to the procedure just as soon as each of the medications are infused and, and then, then you're done with the procedure and then after that it's it's 
closure, I assume you holding pressure. Yeah, you want to see that the heparin, heparinizations come down a little bit. I, I usually like to see an ECT that's drop below 210. Yeah, and then we'll be X then, so we'll put a, a pressure dressing on. We set these up, almost all kids will get three three treatments separated by a month. And uh, in between the second and third is when they start to have their examinations under anesthesia with ophthalmology to both check on the job that we're doing and also see if there's eye-directed therapies that they can provide to complement what we're doing. So after the intra-arterial chemo infusion, there's no need to take like a post, other than to ensure that everything's patent, you're not actually looking for like hypervascularity of the tumor or anything like this. It, it's just to make sure that everything's patent and, and the endpoint isn't necessary or the endpoint isn't at all related to like the post-infusion angiography. It's just. Yeah, we just want to confirm we ever, we ever caused an issue. We want to show that we've delivered the dose and that that all went to the ophthalmic artery. And that there's no problems as a result of us being there. Gotcha. What does the um, the number of sessions per tumor look like? So you mentioned three. Is that just decided? That's just the protocol of of IAC, or does that vary from patient to patient, and depending on how they look on their uh, eye exam after the treatment? We we set out to do three in almost all patients, with with rare exception. And the exceptions would be. Uh, a child that was basically diagnosed with retinoblastoma after birth, and they think they're too small for IAC, and uh, they might have started on systemic with a great response on their ophthalmologic examination. Then we're sort of using IAC to complete or consolidate treatment. But otherwise, every kid will get set up for three. Examinations start after the second one. We're really seeing the results of the first because it takes a little while. And then those examinations will continue monthly as we're continuing on with treatment. And... Our stopping point for treatment after we get to three is that we have minimal or no tumor. And then there's a final intra-arterial treatment, which is really consolidation. And kids who are not responding will continue on, but we usually stop around six treatments in the effective eye. Okay. Roughly, and or I don't know what's the published rate, but how many patients are responders versus non-responders? So it depends a lot on their stage, and, and I won't get into the staging of the disease too much, but we follow the international classification, and it's A, B, C, D, E. A being not so bad, E being not quite bad. Poor disease, but still confined to the eye. And the staging is dependent on the size of the tumor, how far it is from uh, the optic disc, the presence or absence of vitreous disease, et cetera. So that is useful in prognosticating how they're going to respond to, to intra-arterial chemo. And there's been some uh, large series published in meta-analyses, and treatment's always evolving and theoretically getting better. But based on what we know, what I tell patients is that if they come in with uh, B disease, they're enucleation-free survival. So at two years, they're alive at two years with their eye in a disease, is around 90%. Well, if we get into C, then it's about 70 to 90. If we get into D, it's 50 to 70. And if we get into E, then it's about 30 to 50%. And I qualify that with saying, this is, you know, data from 10 years ago or so, and we think we're getting better, uh, but that's what we have to go on. Sure. Talking a little bit about the post-procedural care, is this a same-day discharge? Should patients stay overnight? When we started, we were probably on the conservative side, and we would send kids to the ICU overnight for uh, neurochecks and close monitoring. Mm-hmm. And as everyone on the team got more comfortable, we de-escalated that to 
overnight observation, but on the floor, not in the ICU. But over the last two years or so, we uh, watched them for four to six hours uh, on the oncology floor. IR examines them, and almost all of those kids go home same day. That's great. Post-procedurally, two questions that I wanted to talk about or, or two points I want to talk about are what are the most common complications you see related to the procedure, like things that you act, that actually come up in daily practice? And then on the other end of the spectrum, what's the most feared complication associated with this procedure? So as far as common things, I mean, we have access-related issues, of course, mm-hmm. um, to think about, uh, but specific to retinoblastoma, and, and some might not even say they're complications per se, but side effects. And it's important to know about these and then communicate those to whoever's going to be participating in the post-procedure observation of the patient. And those things include findings which would be very concerning if you weren't expecting them, such as a sluggish dilated pupil on the treat, treated side or weakness of the extracular muscles on the treated side. Other things that are common are swelling, a little bit of a redness in the white of the eye. But all those things are self-limited, uh, usually two days or a week or two. As far as you know, what's most feared, uh, obviously we're in our high dollar real estate territory, if you will. And so we're, we're thinking about embolic stroke, central retinal artery occlusion. So it's really important in my mind to, to not just get heparin, but make sure you got a level that, that is appropriate to being up there. Uh, and then our outstanding catheter hygiene, uh, bubbles, clots, I uh, can't have any of that stuff. So in terms of, of, of your training, whenever uh, you were a fellow and just neuro interventions in general, do you do your exchanges or your wire entries like all underwater or is it just, you know, the, like some standard double flush technique and, and, you know, like extreme attention to, you know, basically hookups and injections? Yeah. So it's, it's the, the high attention to, to detail. Uh, when the wire's coming out, it comes out slowly and it comes out under a hard drip of, of saline. Mm-hmm. And we don't do the, the underwater, but that is a very reasonable thing to do just creates some ergonomic challenges in these cases. Sure, sure. I can imagine. Getting into a little bit of something we alluded to earlier was, you know, trying to main, trying to maintain a very low degree of radiation exposure for what I would imagine is a patient population and whom you want to maintain low radiation exposure. Can you talk a little bit of, to that point regarding things you guys or things that you guys have worked into your approach to the angiography and the trip that tries to minimize like the exposure of uh, what you would say high dollar real estate? Absolutely. So, you know, I'll be the first to admit that coming up, radiation reduction was was always somewhat of an afterthought. Uh, we memorize the deterministic effects and thresholds for the boards, but we, we generally don't get anywhere close to those numbers. And then we have the stochastic effects um, that are out there, but they always seem somewhat abstract uh, and maybe less important and getting the procedure done well. But it is really important to remember that in general, uh, doses are building up cumulatively for you, uh, the team around you, and your patient. And in kids, not just retinoblastoma, all kids, there's a long life ahead to summer, suffer some of those potential complications. But retinoblastoma is unique within that, and uh, those considerations are even more real. Uh, and it's because the retinoblastoma one gene is a tumor suppressor gene. Yeah, those kids are particularly sensitive to radiation. And in the days where radiation therapy was part of the treatment, kids with RB1 gene mutation uh, who got radiation, about half would go on to develop a secondary malignancy, often in the face. And so you'd be trading a one problem for another. And it would be unfortunate to eradicate retinoblastoma, but end up with a high-grade uh, nasopharyngeal sarcoma as a result. 
So it's a real world example of why dialing down the doses matter. And uh, we've been very successful in doing that. Uh, we'll get into some of the specific techniques, but we're now down to a minute or two of fluoro. Uh, and that comes with a learning curve, but also being conscientious about dose. And our air kermas are usually around two to five milligrams per, per treatment, which is something we're proud of. And I think if we step back and, and, and just think about what we're doing in this case, I love a beautiful angiogram probably as much as anybody now. <laughs> but when it comes to INC procedures, we just have to think we're not getting the imaging to make an angiographic diagnosis. It's for guidance and positional confirmation. So less is more and, uh, and something we're focusing on all the time. So just to drill down on and, and to make sure I heard it correctly, fluoroscopy time, less than two minutes in dose under, I think you said two, two to five. Two to five. Five. Yeah. And, you know, for a neurointervention, that, that, that sounds awfully good. And, you know, again, a lot of that comes with experience and we can get into some of the techniques, the you know, things that I've learned that I've found helpful coming along and getting faster with the catheterization. And some of it's just sequence elimination. Do we need an anterior view uh, on the ICA run? No. Do we need an anterior view once we're in the ophthalmic? No. Again, we're not making angiographic diagnosis, so we don't need a DSA. We got rid of all DSAs. The ICA is not a, a roadmap angiogram and navigate setting. And the ophthalmic runs are a roadmap uh, setting in glue. And uh, keep the foot off the pedal and get those doses down. That's great. So how, or in, and maybe it's just a, a combination of one, technical skills, a lot of repetitions, and then a, a really close attention to, you know, what's, you know, you're really trimmed down the procedure angiography wise as to what's essential, but what, what has made the biggest difference in, in terms of, of going from a dose of, or, or going from a fluoroscopy time of like 10 minutes to less than two, because less than two minutes and then, you know, a dose of, I mean, I'm sure the dose is partly a product of the size of your patient, but you know, the fluoroscopy time is, it's hard to argue. I mean, that is very, very low. Like what, what were like some of the big movers of, of getting this down? And then what were some of the margins or, or what some of the, like the progress at the margins? So, you know, big movers, learning curve, obviously, but like any other procedure you do enough, you get faster. Um, but I think there's a lot of mental preparation. We talked about the procedure being a concert and, you know, running through that, having a team around you that's experienced and ready for the next five things that you're going to need in sequence and the chemo's there and you're not wasting any time. As far as uh, technical aspects beyond changing imaging protocols would be what, what we've gained in the experience with catheterizing ophthalmic artery. And when it comes to the ophthalmic artery, if you're, if you're a body IR, like I said, when it comes to just less is more, and you need to set aside some things, which you, you think of as fundamental, like trying to get a wire into the OA, it's just going to make it mad and perhaps preclude treatment. So the trick instead is to take advantage of the distal carotid anatomy and the flow-directed properties of the microcatheter. And if you think about the cavernous ICA into the supraclinoid segment, it's a bit of a hairpin. And even though these microcatheters are incredibly soft, they'd still rather be straight as opposed to curved. So as you slowly withdraw or advance the catheter across the ostium, it'll want to jump in in, in almost every case. And that, you know, that was counterintuitive to me because advancing the microcatheter without a wire in front of it is something that would have probably got me benched during a case as a fellow, <laughs> but in this situation, it's, it's safe and it's really effective. Okay. Excellent. In terms of 
of level of difficulty uh, of this case? Like, where where does this sit in, in terms of like trying to catheterize the ophthalmic artery? Like I mentioned earlier, any procedure, there's a learning curve. And, you know, most procedures, once you've done, you know, 50, 100 of them, uh, it, it feels routine and, and things are, are very straightforward until the rare one where they're not. Uh, and it, and your learning curve depends on, well, you know, where you spend your time. So if you don't do a lot of PEDS IR, your learning curve is probably going to be on femoral artery access because it can be quite challenging to get into the femoral artery in a baby, not only because of the small size, but it's propensity for vasospasm. And if you do a lot of PEDS stuff, but you don't do a lot of neuro stuff, then, then, you're, then your learning curve may be elsewhere. And for us, the way that we got beyond that, again, I'm going to bring back the team approach. And I have to give a lot of credit to Dan Helm, who's in NeuroIR. Uh, and got our program going in about 2013. Dan spends every day in the head and neck, and I spend every day in, in the pediatric IR procedures. And we combined our different strengths and, you know, more or less did every single case together for a few years. And we learned from each other, and we took um, the experience of the other to 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 master the procedure, this particular procedure, in a faster way than we could have alone. That's great. I would imagine the the community of of people that that do this procedure in the U.S. is is is, is probably a, a pretty small fraternity. Roughly, how many uh, programs in the country? In you know, of course, you may not know every program, but roughly, how many programs in the country are doing intraarterial chemotherapy for retinoblastoma? Well, when we got going, it was again maybe six years ago. We were one of four or five programs, and I bet it's closer to twelve to fifteen now. And that's great. You know, if, if you are a parent with a child who's going to need a treatment that's complex and making a lot of visits to the hospital, you don't want to have to be flying over several states every couple of weeks and uh, worrying about all that. Uh, the other side of it is we have a disease where there's, you know, maybe a case a day, 300 diagnoses in the U.S. per year, not all of which will be candidates for intraarterial chemotherapy. So you don't want to proliferate something to the point that it dilutes each center's uh, relative experience and get to the point where you're not doing a lot. And some of that important flow uh, during the case that comes with a routine occurrence of, of the procedure and, and the familiarity uh, in the team around you, that can get diluted as well. Sure. Looking, looking forward for retinoblastoma treatment in, in five, to t- five to 10 years, I, I'm sure that the tea leaves, as always, are, are never perfectly clear, but what are the exciting things down the line for intraarterial chemotherapy, either with retinoblastoma or, or other tumors that you've seen? And, and also, you know, what's, what's the very exciting things in terms of retinoblastoma treatment that, that you see in the future? You know, well, we talked a little bit about our technique, so always, always working to improve that. Better with the delivery, uh, reduce the treatment time, reduce the dose, reduce the complications. Beyond that, I see an increased availability of this treatment internationally and hopefully to, to underserved populations. And beyond that, we're, we're continuing to learn more about combining the treatment with other eye-directed treatments, usually performed by ophthalmology, and looking at what works well and, uh, and what doesn't. And then, of course, we're going to have improvements in chemotherapies themselves and maybe the introduction of gene therapies and immunotherapies specific for retinoblastoma. I think one of the exciting things is, you know, the equipment keeps getting better and skills that you develop for one thing translate to another. So 
Peds IR in general may be lagging adult IR a few years in terms of uh, what we do or what we're capable of, but gaining that experience in an area like retinal blastoma translates well to interventional oncology or, or a wide range of uh, transarterial procedures in pediatrics. And, and it's going to be an exciting future. That's great. So Eric, for maybe trainees or for people who are interested in learning more about this procedure, can you give some advice on some papers to start with in terms of getting to know this procedure and the procedural steps associated with it? Of course. So one of the papers I really like, and I'll refer to to residents uh, or fellows coming through that haven't uh, seen any of these, uh, is a paper out of the Hopkins group, 2016 in pediatric radiology and the first author is YSWYSE. And it's a really nice review of, of some of the anatomy and, and some of the results that are out there, at least at the time of that publication, and a very good overview that, that comes from a radiology perspective. So it's not going to be excessive in terms of the oncology aspects in the background there, but a really nice uh, look at the history of retinoblastoma, the development of this treatment, and uh, the results as far as we know. Okay, that's great. And so, Eric, I think we've, we've pretty flushed out this topic pretty well. Any, any final thoughts or closing remarks uh, on retinoblastoma and intraarterial chemotherapy? No, I just want to thank you guys again and uh, wonderful opportunity and wonderful work that you guys are doing at Backtable and uh, spreading a good word about it. All right. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you for the kind words. To the audience, uh, thank you guys for listening. We covered an important topic today. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you are really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. This helps us in a lot of different ways. Plus, uh, we love the feedback and we really take it seriously. That about wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back Table Podcast.